Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? profit margin on salads but there used to be so many restaurants where it was that it was just like one enormous salad bar with everything you could possibly want on your salad and like really good little corn muffins I miss those days yes (laughs) you know you know I remember in the midwest it was different because nobody eats salad really in the midwest (laughs) I mean when I was growing up we didn't anyway yeah for sure there was a sizzler salad bar and that mostly Mm. had like cheese blue cheese cheddar cheese eggs bacon bits yes eggs bacon bits croutons that was your salad and iceberg lettuce and some ice uh, uh, iceberg if you're lucky and shredded carrots like that was your salad and i was just thinking of sizzler i actually really liked sizzler and um we used to go with my grandma my great aunt and my freaking great aunt ruth my grandma's sister would put popcorn shrimp in a napkin in her purse because it was all you can eat and she would take that that shit home in a napkin not even a tupperware not a napkin she'd wrap all the popcorn shrimp in her bag oh my god God bless her that's awesome how you doing how you doing over there well i woke up in a fantastic mood it's a beautiful sunny day um i think really that i this is going to sound crazy, but I really think after my first vaccine, I think I was tired for one month mm-hmm. because then I got my second one last week and I felt bad just for one day. And after that, I feel better than I have in like a month. I don't yeah. know what to make of that, but um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I think that doesn't shock me. Like, I think you were probably fighting it off some for, form of the virus for a month. Yeah. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think I was. Um, and today's my mom's birthday. So oh, happy birthday! Yes, yes, that, very cool. I'll t- I'll call her when we're done here. And um, yeah, so was, everything was coming up roses, and then I got an email, and you know, I saw the email come through, and I thought I'm in a good mood. I don't want to read this email because I have a feeling it's going to tick me off. But I'm trying to be better about responding to people in a timely fashion because this is not a strength of mine i mean i'm the type of person i either get back to you the second i get your thing or like it takes me six years okay so so i decided to be you know i thought oh i'll feel even better if i feel like i've just handled this (laughs) (laughs) and then of course i opened just this like pandora's box of shit and twinkies it was terrible and you know, that aside, here's here's where I am at, at in my life. Okay. I'm trying to look at these. Ex- I'm I'm trying to stop looking at these experiences in such a like a micro fashion and think about like how this person is hurting my feelings or how they're wrong and I'm right or whatever. And instead, I want to make it like a growing, a learning moment, a teaching moment for myself about like what my tendencies are and why am I getting angry and resentful and keeping myself in check about like how I do things. Which is good. I mean, that's the only way to stay sane, I think. I think that's the only way to stay sane. So, and, and, you know, not that I never realized this before, but it's really hitting home. Like, if you have clearly defined um, values and every decision you make uh, is, is guided by that, um, I mean, not, not to say it's always so conscious. Mostly it's probably unconscious, but 
when there's a conflict or something like that, and somebody's questioning something that you did, if you check in with yourself and you say, wait, if I were in that person's shoes, like on the other side of this power dynamic, I think I would be fine with what I'm doing. I still think what I did is fine. But what happens, the, the flip side of people pleasing mm. is resentment. Uh-huh. Totally. Because this part, hang on, I have to take some more. Okay. Take one, two. Um, because this person who's giving me a hard time, what they don't know is that... Um, I've poisoned them. No, I'm just... That I, that I anonymously provided financial support to them. <gasps> <laughs> so here's the thing. That, that, so that's an example of, resent, of people pleasing and resentment. I, it's not like I loved this person, but I knew that this person needed a little help. And I found a way that I could do it anonymously that wasn't going to um, make them feel ashamed. And so I did it. And, and now when I'm getting a hard time, my impulse is to say, I, after what I did, after what I've done for you, and that's the phrase, after what I've done for you, the minute you hear that coming out of your mouth, yes. you know you're doing something wrong. <laughs> you because, know, yes. Yeah, oh, go my ahead. God. I was just going to say, this is the uh, um, epitome of how I, I spent probably most of my time until recently is saying, like, I, my version of that is very similar. It's like, I did so good. I tried so hard and you screwed me over. And mine borders goes then into feeling sorry for myself and resentful. But instead of, it turns to like, I, this always happens to me. I always try and look what happens. So anyway, continue. So, so yeah, absolutely. I, everything you just said, I totally relate to. Those are also things that I have said to myself and it's no good. It poisons the well of my own good vibes. And, and, you know, I've said many times in here, I don't think the answer is to only have good vibes, but I also don't think the only answer is to, you know, be a swishing about like a plastic bag in the wind based on who, how somebody is accepting or rejecting you in any given moment. So, um, yeah, so I'm guess what did you do. Is, so I wrote a response. This has to do with this organization that I'm sure. a part of. And I wrote, a re- I wrote, I drafted something that I sent to the other, uh, my cohort, uh, you know, the other leaders mm-hmm. in the group, um, to, you know, to get feedback about which, which is good because I didn't just send it. Which, so smart, <laughs> which is what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. And, and the thing about, yeah, so I, so this is what, this is all it is. I'm just meditating about my desire. And also it's all very selfish of me. Like my desire to please people is for them to approve of me Correct. because I crave their approval. Mm-mm. It's not really about the other person. Mm-mm. What I'd like to get to is a place when I do kind things for people. It's either because that's my value to be kind um, or it gives me joy to, you know, but never because I like want to have something over them. I think that's how I've always viewed my kindnesses is like the sort of like quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. I did this for you. So therefore like you shouldn't have any problem with me. You know, Mm -hmm. it's silly. It's when when I say it out loud, it's completely antithetical to what I No, but I get it. I get it. It is so complicated to, um, 
even pause anywhere in there and say, okay, what, and it all comes, what am I really doing here? And it, for me, it all comes down to a lot of times my, I hate that I hate it, but it comes down to my inner child, like not needing something that I'm not giving her. I mean, that it comes from me. It's an inside job. It's not about the other person. And I hate that because it doesn't feel like that in the moment. In the moment, it feels like it's about the idiot other person. It's about them. But then if I pause, I'm like, oh, it's not. It's it's almost never about them. It's almost always about like what they... And by the way, it, the same thing is true for the other party. Like I, I can I can have this interaction with this person with the knowledge that they're not they can't be this upset at the thing that I did. This has to be a projection for them about a bunch of other things. And then, okay. And that's yet another realization because one of my evolutions in this had got me to the point where I felt like I needed to go around telling everybody what their problem was, (laughs) you know, like, let me give you a little advice when you do this, blah, 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 which is, also not healthy and productive and helpful. People don't usually take that very well, unsolicited advice. So it's like, no, my only job is right here. My only job is to check in with my values, to make sure that what I'm doing reflects that, to treat the other person no matter what they're doing to me with kindness and keep it moving. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, someone once said something super helpful to me, which blew my mind, which you, I mean, many people probably already got this like day five of kindergarten, but it was, it was, um, she was like, you have no control over the other person, but here's the flip side. They don't actually have control over you either. And I was like, what? What right. are you talking about? And she was like, it's a two-way street, which is what you just said, which is um, not only do I have to look at, okay, this is this what I'm doing. This strong feeling is about an inside job. Something's going on with me. But then their email, like you said, is also not really about you. It is yeah. and it isn't. But that there is so much operating that I don't understand that has nothing to do with me. Nothing. Zero. Zilch. This is why Fight Club is such a brilliant movie because at the end of the day, that's all we are always doing is just fighting with ourselves. And we, we will so believe that it's, if, if all these other people would just stop, you know, doing what they're doing, then I could be happy. It's like, no, even if they stopped doing everything they're doing, you would still feel this way if you haven't done the work on yourself. Right. And that brings us back to what we were talking about last time, which was about a DID, you know, dissociative identity disorder and, and the parts of us that fight. And then we can't, the only way through is bringing them all to the table and saying, okay, parts, what is going on? What can we do here to, to come to some kind of agreement or at least sort out who's wanting what here because there's a part of me that wants revenge there's a part of me that wants to be the victim there's a part of me that wants to lash out and hurt 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 and um yeah it's there's so many parts there's so many parts even if you don't have did like you were saying we all have Mm -hmm. that stuff but i think it's all we can do is what you're doing which is not respond right away check it out with somebody else who who i trust and not not react from a place of of like primal smallness yeah that's exactly it and I have to say when I have these experiences with people who are much older than me it makes me sad because you know 
I, I sometimes feel like I'm late to understanding all of this, even though people do say, oh, lots of people go their whole lives without ever. And I, and I know plenty of people like that. I still, I think before I was this age, I think I thought that everybody who was this age or older, you know, just had all of this wisdom and, and in some people that's true, but I really know and communicate with a lot of elderly people who are far from having, I mean, it's actually, (laughs) honestly, not only is it not evolved communication it it feels like I'm stepping back to Whoa. yes to a much younger version of myself and and other people like the way that people in this one context interact with me is exactly the way I felt about how people interacted with me in in high school wow. and and also the first time that I was president of an organization which was in grad school I had the same exact experience I just really thought that mostly people when they got to a certain age they were you know just they were over all of that Mm -hmm. so it does make me kind of sad like oh god this is your life right you just live in these reactions to other people and you just they they are the plastic bags floating around right you know right and that's that's what my my psychiatrist said don't be a mobile home right He, (laughs) he, he drew me a picture of a mobile home and i put a cross through it and it's really i have it framed on my desk and it's he just said don't be a mobile home and i was like what are you talking about dr altman he was like don't mobile homes get blown by the winds any which way the wind blows and you can't live inside a mobile home without getting blown away you need some kind of you know and i was like oh my god but it's true we can't it's a terrible life to just be blown this way and that way by and i know because i lived this way a long time by other people's stuff my own stuff outside forces stuff it's just too much it's too much wind you can't do it too much wind in short get yourself a foundation or a tornado cellar (laughs) get yourself on solid ground that's a great hey let me run this by you have a, a writing mentor I've never had a teacher or a mentor who I actually really like and also who scares me but isn't mean so my mentor Don and I'm paying her it's not as though she's yeah. you know it's an it's a it's a business relationship but she is I yesterday I turned in a bunch of work a couple of days ago and I had a meeting with her yesterday and I was like dreading it. I was like, oh, because I've had bad mentorship in the past. Not all their fault either. My fault too. But I just have had been involved in bad relationships that way. Mm-hmm. She's not. She gave me hard feedback, but it was in this really nice, loving way, which not everybody can do. And it's a skill. She is. She gave me some great feedback about my pilot and we're proceeding. And it just was a really corrective experience because as if you've listened to this podcast, you know, I have a real hard time with feedback or have. I take it very personally. That part is underdeveloped in me and I'm trying to develop it. But she is able, she's not necessarily nice. It's It's more that she's kind underneath. It's not, it's not kit, uh, what kit gloves, kid gloves, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's, um, 
she trusts that I'll be able to take the feedback, but she also has really good ideas. So it's not just like, you need to fix this. This sucks. This sucks. She's like, what about, she's very curious about the scripts that she's, at least in my experience, that she's mentoring. And I know it's not just mine because I was in a group mentoring situation with her and everyone's script. She's like, I'm wondering, oh, it's such a pleasure to do business with someone like that. Thank God. So that tells you that the whole reason you were ever in that program was to meet her. Was to meet her. And that was the thing that you felt was lacking when you were actually in the program was just good mentorship. So. Exactly. So now I have that and it's well worth the money I'm paying her. Like it is, and we'll see what happens, but I, I feel strongly about this pilot. It's gotten crazy. Um, I, it's, I changed the title then I changed it back. Um, I, the title was me. It was hold my calls, which is a plan, hold my balls and hold. And then I was like, yeah, yeah. Then I want it to be called me three. And then now it's hold my calls again. It's perfect. It's, it's okay. great because okay. she's like, she challenges me. She's like, I want to know what this means because me three, I tells me nothing. And I was like, you're right. It's just a plan okay. me too. And so she's just making it clear. She's just, uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm yesterday was a very sort of unproductive, weird day. And then I had this call with her and I felt like it reinvigorated me. So we all need nice. mentors is my thing. Oh my God. If you can be a mentor and if you need get a mentor. Yeah. So like in your, I was going to ask you in your organizations that you're all a part of, are there like, cause we've talked a lot about sort of uh, older generations being mm, kind of hard. Is there anyone that's older? Cause well, I guess Dawn's not really older, but anyone in your organizations that is mentor mentoring the younger? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it does feel like it's the reverse. Okay. It it feels like Mm -hmm. it's the reverse because. You're just kind of bringing them. You're trying to bring without talking shit about them. We're trying to bring people along. We're trying to. Yeah. um, I I like you until, until you have had Dawn. I, I, my mother is a mentor of mine. Um, Sometimes my husband is a mentor of mine. Uh, other than that, Don Ilko was a mentor of mine. Um, but I, I haven't had anybody like really sort of take an interest in my career and kind of shepherd me very far in any given direction. So I, now that you're talking about this, maybe I'm going to be more on the lookout. Maybe I'm going to pur- purposely, intentionally invite mentorship. Well, what, yeah, what I'm noticing is all our guests, the ones that really sort of made the most out of their theater school experience had mentorship, you mm-hmm. know, like, I'm glad you had Don. I, I don't, I don't think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, it does really seem from the people that we talk to. Yeah. Like a lot of the people who have, who struggled then and continue to struggle didn't really have enough strong sort of figures leading them along the way. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a problem. So the thing I wanted to run by you is um, it's about boundaries. I believe that the tenants of codependency are so widespread mm-hmm. that most people if not that they're codependent most people that i encounter in life 
um, have values that I feel are rooted in codependency. Mm. Like if you really love somebody, you'll stick with them no matter what. Or if you really care for somebody, if you're a kind person, then I mean, not that people think about it this way, but what it ends up being is people can walk all over you. Sure. And then the converse of that or the corollary to that is when you put up boundaries, people say you're cold. Yes, it's true. And and people say you're a bitch and people say you're difficult, difficult. Yeah. And honestly, like the dial has not moved on this topic to my knowledge. I mean, not in my lifetime. I don't feel that the dial has moved on this. I feel we are no closer as a society to embracing healthy boundaries than we, you know, I just, the number of times in my life, I encounter somebody who, who takes me the wrong way, who takes me, who takes my boundaries as a, an admonition or some, like I'm saying you're doing something wrong instead of, no, I'm just holding a boundary. I don't know how, and I get to the point where I'm like, I feel like I explain this all the time. I don't know how else to, you can't you say it no i think it's a double bind right because you say there people tell us don't be a doormat don't get walked all over stand up for yourself you take pride in yourself even this whole movement of good vibes only it's like own your power own your shit be it be a badass but it doesn't in practice in practical terms what that does is if you set up boundaries right people think you're being mean people People think that you're, especially if you're a woman, people think you're cold, ice queen, all that shit. So it's a bind. It's, we get put into a bind and it's really unfair. And I think, I think it's my job to do the work when someone puts up boundaries to check in with myself, but nobody wants to do the work. So everyone's just like, oh, she's cold. She's, you know, I think of female pop stars all the time this happens to like if you look at pink or Katy perry or lady gaga it's like people think they're a bitch because they're trying to protect their self and their empire it's like and they're what they've done they get judged and it's not fair and we need to i think we've got to stop doing it yeah and i i can't i'd be hard pressed to come up with an example of somebody who lives a life that i would want to emulate that doesn't have good boundaries you know um or you it's not you can't it's not possible to be boundaryless a doormat and have uh, accomplish your hopes and dreams and goals it's just really not um and if i'm taking my own advice from the conversation we had earlier i'd have to say yeah well it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks these are (laughs) i've already decided this is what my values are and nobody has to like it, but no, th- that doesn't mean that I have to stop having boundaries. No. And in fact, if, 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 if I feel like if I stop having boundaries so that people like me, I'm going to die a miserable death of, of, of like a mobile home death of being blown mm-hmm. around. And the, I think boundaries and um, doing the work of in, inner work is the only way to freedom because I feel like if we are constantly living in this codependent way, there is no hope for our future. It, it, it's it's miserable to try to to try to, to live in a codependent um, relate like relationship or even like just have in business. You can't do business that way. Business gets really screwy. Yeah, dude. And also, 
nobody seems to be able to correlate the fact that boundarylessness in exists in the same realm as drink wine to solve all your problems. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, yeah, if you spend your life, you know, um, fostering resentments, doing things for people that you don't really want to do, then the only thing you can do at the end of the day is drink. Right. It's, there's a correlation between that and and fi- for me i'll take it a step further and say physical health so like i yes. think that all my fear and resentments and um people pleasing stuff it's not it's not a uh coincidence that my heart is kind of wonky like i think yeah. that all contributes it all and i'm not saying people deserve it i'm not saying i deserve to feel to have a heart issue but what i'm saying is it's all part of the process it's me i'm the what's the common denominator me what's yeah. the common thing me it's like yeah. that so i just i hear you and i think that we we've come up we we've not come a long way the needle has not moved and i think that there's still so much especially for women there's so many um traps because we're being told you know to be brave and bold and speak our truth but at the same time be nice and kind and still yeah it's all just platitudes honestly and and a lot of the platitudes are really contradictory and i feel like people echo these sentiments especially on social media because they sound good or you know but i i don't find as many people who are really living the platitudes as are, you know, spouting them. And, and I'm not suggesting that I am living the platitudes. I'm just saying, like, there seems to be a big valley between, you know, what we say we're about, a lot of people, what we say we're about, and then what we're actually doing. Yes. It's the reason that so many people, I think, have unfulfilled lives. Yes. Because they have this, on the one hand, this idea of what their life could be like, but they don't really have any skill. They don't have all the skills required necessarily to get there. So, and another myth in society is, you know, it's just a matter of working hard. I mean, yes, working hard is a part of it, but if you're just working hard and and not effectively, then you're just spinning your wheels and burning out. And, and it's dangerous. And, and I think, and I was talking to, um, this other woman who said, who said, like, yeah, we, we're told we have to love ourselves, love our parts. And I'm like, well, but I need a roadmap to get there. How? I, I have no, like you said, I have no, uh, evidence. I have no frame of reference. I have no teaching models for this. So it's like, we need teaching models of how to not be codependent, which is why, you know, 12 step programs work and therapy because it's the only sort of roadmap I know of how to get out of the cycle of codependence, you know? That's right. So there and, you go. And, and it's a cycle. Oh boy. It's a cycle to have you twisted and turning and tossing around and like the plastic bag. Like the plastic bag in the mobile home. And I'm not saying if you live in a mobile home, you've got troubles. What I'm saying is get some bricks and tie the shit down. There's somebody right now in a mobile home looking out their window at a floating plastic bag being like, fuck you. (laughs) You're like, great. I'm fucked. No, you're not. Just get a brick bricks and tie that shit down. That's right. And you too deserve to be grounded and to have the life that you want to have. the 
podcast, we're talking with Ryan Kitley. Ryan Kitley um, got his MFA from the theater school at DePaul and after just started acting on stages and big screens and small screens, um, still located in Chicago, still acting all these years later and teaching now at DePaul. He's hilarious. He's a father. He's a voiceover actor. So please enjoy our conversation with Ryan Kitley. class is fun it's just we're we i make it up kind of as i go don't tell DePaul i mean that, but yeah. don't you think that's exactly what all of our teachers did <laughs> i mean how, how i mean maybe voice and speech they had like a, an agenda and we have to do this this and this i mean because wasn't that the only one we were really using a book for freeing the natural voice oh my god oh my i god. forgot about that book yeah. Oh, wait, are we, uh, is this, have we started? Basically. No, congratulations, Ryan <laughs> oh. Kitley. You survived theater school and we have already been talking. So we're, we're just going to continue our conversation about Kristen Linklater, Freeing the Natural Voice. I think that was the only textbook. I mean, yeah. history of dramatic literature, but like in acting and stuff. In fact, did, did we read any acting books? Um. Books on acting? No, Bell, uh, Spolin. Didn't we read? No. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But did, no, did we, read we didn't it? I read this, it. Nah, and I don't think we really, it wasn't like we had a test or anything either. I remember getting a lot of handouts, you know, like photocopies of certain sections. Mm, um, yeah. That, yeah. That's, right. that's, that's yeah, also. So I, I have a feeling our teachers just, they're like, well, let's see. Uh, I mean, the day <laughs> that we had to do the it's the last day you're alive. Go, you know, that was that John Jenkins did. Did you have that Ryan where you, it was a spring day and we went into class and John Jenkins said, it's your last day on earth. Now I knew even then that that's what he did that day. Cause it was a gorgeous day. He didn't want to be inside <laughs> teaching. He knew we didn't want to be inside learning. And, and Boz and I have joked that what we did with our last day on earth was we just went back to my house. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the most boring. I think we draw, we drew, we, 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 we were drew. drawing, drawing yeah. things. And then that was it. What a, what a waste of a last day. I, we should have like done I re- drugs. I do remember I didn't have John and I didn't get that assignment, mm. but I remember I was like, Oh, that's so cool. You know, like, and then I'm like, well, I could do this every day of my life if I wanted to. <laughs> But I'm like, that's such a cool assignment. I'm like, I wonder what those guys are doing. You know, it's their last day. Yeah. But yeah. I never had, I mean, I, I know, I knew John really well, but I never had his, I don't think I ever had his, I took him, uh, I took his class. Really? Uh, I mean, you took movement to music. No? I took, but I did that with Jim. Oh, oh because you were MFA. Right. I've done, yeah. I did, I did a couple, maybe like one or two sessions with John, but we did movement to music primarily with Jim. That yeah. would have been interesting. I would have liked to be a fly on the wall. I wonder how, if it was the same. I mean, cause John mm-hmm. told us when we interviewed him that it was Jim who, who introduced this curriculum to the theater yeah. school. But for me, it's such a John Jenkins thing. And it's weird to imagine Jim teaching that class. I'm sure it was, uh, you know, a version of the same thing. That was one of my favorite I loved that as, yeah, I did. I loved it. I, as weird as it was, um, you know, just, I remember doing it at like 10 or 11 at night in that little, uh, little the movement room in the corner. 
um, mm-hmm. at, with Jim, and we did it for like four or five hours at a time. And what? Yeah, yeah. Wait a minute. What yes. is going on? Did you <laughs> sound were you unsanctioned? Were you taking mushrooms? What's going on here? Did you? Did you? It was at night. I yeah, we did it at night, like three or four times, at okay. least. Yeah. Like, where are you saying that that's when the class was? Or Jim was like, let's just, let's just don't do, do it, it in the morning. Let's just do it at night. Um, Maybe I it don't was remember, like a- but I know it because I remember it was it was almost pitch black and it was it was at night. <laughs> I oh, think he got wow. like he got like late access to the the school, you know, to the building or whatever. And um, that's I just cool. remember. It was re- it was really cool. It was I, I it was one of the strangest things that I remember doing, but it was really it was really fun, and I was like, I want to do it again. Um, five 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 hours though. <laughs> for five hours. <laughs> we we it was a it was like a night. It was like a. That is the I'm crazy. I'm sure, it sounds great. It sounds, I mean, it, it may it may have been like two or three hours, but yeah, it, it was a um, while. That was you. The, the MFAs. <laughs> I don't know what the MFAs were doing. You guys had like a whole. We we were like nine a.m. Movement to music. Sweaty, yeah, I, sweaty, and hungover. Anything mm-hmm. at nine a.m. was not good for me in that building. We used to do um, yoga at like eight. In the morning. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And I had never done yoga in my life. And I was like, why are we doing this? And why are we doing it so early? And what does this have to do with acting? You know, the amount of things, times that I said that, I was like, what does this have to do with acting? And they're yes. like, Just shut up and do your downward dog or whatever. Now, how many MFA acting class is small, right? Like, how many people were in your class? We. St- we started with two sections. Um, oh, okay. There was uh, a section. It was ten and ten, and we ended with one section of ten. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So half. So half. That's mm-hmm. how. It, that's how it been played that's out. How it was for the for the uh, BFAs too. So, what did you st- did you study theater in undergrad too? Um, <laughs> I. My first audition was for the theater school. What? I, I never, I never what? acted like oh, at wow. all. Okay. Um, I, I, it's, I, it's really kind of weird and crazy how I, I even got in. Um, I don't know. I still don't know. Um, but yeah, I never acted in high school or undergrad. Did um, you, how did you know what acting <laughs> was even? after after undergrad um i moved to chicago and i started i took a class at second city and i i fell in love with it i was like this is amazing this is awesome i love this and i wanted more of it and i wanted you know to learn and uh someone was like oh well why don't you try to get your mfa i was like great what is that i hadn't i just i had no clue but what did you study in undergrad? Uh, communications, um, like like radio and TV production. Um, you know, like I, I think I wanted to to like be a DJ or work in some kind of TV production or something like that. 
but um yeah so it was (laughs) so they said they said go get your maybe an mfa and you were like sure and then like how did you say like okay well i guess i need to learn monologues did you just fall into it or it's just so strange it's so strange I, i i bugged i bugged the hell out of my improv teacher and um you know he's like look go go get a monologue memorize it uh work on it and i was like all right um do you remember what you did, Ryan? I do. Um, I did uh, a monologue from a play called Breaking Up by Michael Christopher. Never and, heard of it. Um, I, had, I couldn't find the play. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. Like, I, I was just clueless. I couldn't find the play. I looked up Michael Christopher he lived in New York. He's an he's an actor. He was on. Um, uh, did you ever see Mr. Robot? Yeah, yeah. He's like a a main character yeah. in Mr. Robot. Um, anyway, so I tried calling him in New York, and <laughs> I mean, this was like before. This was this was in '95, so it wasn't like right. or '94. Um, anyway, I couldn't find the play, so I just kind of I, I I winged it. I don't I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I never, I just asked so many people. I'm like, how do I do this? What do I do? Um, you know, I was living with like my non-acting roommates and I would perform it for them and they'd just be like, oh yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, they had no, like, we're all just like, so. Um, They're I, like, how did you memorize that? That's the first thing that everybody right. always says. How did you I memorize did, all, you all memorize those lines? All those lines? So I, I laugh about the um, the audition because. I walked in, um, it was the, the large movement room. Um, John, uh, I think John Jenkins was there. I know John Bridges was there. Maybe Melissa Meltzer um, and Jim Ostelhoff, right? And I, I had no idea what to expect. I walk, I walk in and, you know, it's empty except for a chair in the middle of the room. And I kind of looked at the chair. I'm like, I've never done this monologue sitting down. I'm thinking to myself, like, what do I do with this chair? So, I mean, I'm. Oh, you thought you had to sit down? I didn't. Yeah, I just didn't know. And um, I mean, I was so nervous. Um, and you know, just picture those four, especially Ostelhoff, just sitting there, you know, staring at me. So mm-hmm. I grabbed the chair to kind of move it, and Jim, um, from you know, all the way at the other end of the room, he's just like. Put the chair up stage. <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant. Right. I didn't, oh, yeah. I'm not kidding you. I was like, so I didn't. Are you looking speak. up? Like- I was looking around and he's like, put the chair up stage. And so I kind of like, I moved. I don't, I don't remember what I did, but he literally had to say up by the other wall, you know? So I was like, okay, great. So I. <laughs> And, you know, and I mean, they must have just been like, you guys, like, are you kidding me? You didn't know what upstage meant? Um, So whatever. So, yeah, I did the monologue. And then, you know, I remember us having some kind of interview meeting. They were just asking about my background and stuff. And they're probably just like cracking up. Like, who is this? Like, I was wearing like red sweatpants because they said to they they said to like get you know like movement clothes and I like just grabbed whatever was in my apartment. I, I mean, he's got like, I, I a, was bus- like a business shirt on with red. Yeah. Shirt. 
Yeah, I was wearing like red sweatpants for this like serious, you know, boyfriend girlfriend monologue. I, I don't know what the hell I was doing. I was I was like, oh, I probably won't be able to change there. You know, little do I know, like at, at theater school, people just walk around just taking clothes off and changing wear. It was like it was like a foreign land to me. I had no idea what was going on. I have to say, this is something that I feel sad for younger people about because nothing you can live a life where nothing is a mystery. Like you can live a life where you just Google, how do I audition for the theater school? And like, you're going to know exactly what to wear and exact. And uh, that's too bad. You know, people don't get, people don't get to have any moments of just not knowing about something and not knowing how to do something. Because Mm -hmm. if we, if we had Jim here and if he remembered it, I I bet he would say like, it it was really charming that you didn't know. stage and that 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 in some ways like acting teachers like when they don't have to undo a bunch of bad habits like you were truly being taught for the first time yeah that makes their job easier i mean talk about beginner's mind beginner's mind over here Mm -hmm. i mean i do think that i i got in like gina like you were saying that's such a good point they're they're like oh we can teach this kid anything because he knows nothing um but yeah i mean it took me a long time to like like figure out what i just asked everybody all the time i'm like what's this how do you do that how do you do this um it was definitely a humble uh humbling you know experience um but i i you know like you guys it's just like i loved it you know i loved I loved being there. I loved everything about it. It was so different to me. Um, you know, the whole experience and it was really, it was so exciting and creative and scary. And was your um, mom like, what? Cause oh, you're from Jersey, Jersey, right? Yeah, yeah, was your yeah. mom like, what are you doing? They, they, I think they're still asking me that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember calling home and I was just like, you know, they knew that I was out here taking uh, like improv classes and I was bartending or whatever. And, you know, they just thought there was just kind of like a fun thing that I was doing. And I remember calling home and I was like, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to audition to get into this this uh, MFA program. And it was like the shortest conversation because they didn't know what to, they were just like, OK, uh, I got to go. Um, they, they didn't they just didn't get it. They were like, what are you talking about? Um, not that they didn't understand what it was. They didn't understand why I was doing that. Um, and I was, they're like, you're totally on your own financially. They're like, good luck. Um, which I, uh, you know, that was kind of our, our understanding, like after college, you know, my parents were like, all right, well, you want any more education? It's, it's on you. Right. And so, so I pick a three-year MFA program that costs a little bit of money. Well, it costs a lot of money, but then again, you've been a working actor ever since you graduated. Like you're, you're, you're an example of that. You you should be on the brochure, right? Like you could uh, come to the school, leave, and this is what you do for the rest of your life. I mean, you, you're actually, I would say that people who do that are in the minority of people who graduate from theater school. So it's a huge accomplishment that you just went right to work. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there have been many dry spells but 
But you've um, maintained, I mean, you've worked, you're, you've worked consistently. You're, and, and Gina's right. We don't sp- speak to a lot of people for a myriad of reasons, one of which is just that it's hard as shit, but mm-hmm. th- that ha- have stayed in the business, even, you know, you, anyway. So that's is, this is a cool thing, you know? Well, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. I mean, like all of us, I, I always want to be working more and I'm thinking, oh, when is it going to happen? But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've done my best to keep it going. Um, and it, it hasn't been pretty the entire way, but, um, you know, I, when I'm working, I feel like I'm the best version of myself, but when I'm not working, it is, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty tough and depressing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's probably universally true. So you, so you arrive, so you, you get into the theater school and it's day one and you're doing imp- like warm-up exercises. This is the thing that my mind always goes to because that was the yeah. thing that was so shocking to me is like space work and blah, blah, blah. So what were you thinking? Um, at, at the audition or once? No, when you start, when you started, you started the training. I mean, you didn't have any frame of reference for what it was going to be. Yeah. Um, I was, I was constantly nervous and scared and I felt like I felt raw and like naked all the time. Like everybody knows that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I was afraid to speak up. Um, I I was, I, I was just like, until I, I got friendly with our group and that happened pretty quickly because we had a great group. Um, they were so supportive um and they all had so much experience so um but yeah i was um i was willing to try anything i remember barry um he was in he was in my class barry brunetti mm-hmm. um one of my favorite human beings i love him um <laughs> i remember him saying like he was i don't know working on some show or exercise or something and he's like um, he's like, well, Kitley will do it. He doesn't know any better, so he'll do anything. <laughs> and I was like, is that a compliment? Or, um, but I remember him saying that, like, oh, Kitley will do it. He doesn't know, you know. Um, and I kind of had that approach, like, all right, I'll, I'll try this. Um, were you yeah, like that was... as? Were you like that as a kid? Were you someone that would just try things? Because I, I'm the opposite of that. So, what, what, how, where did that come from? That like, I'll know. do it. Uh. No, I mean, you know, like in high school, you like, no, I was like, that's probably why I didn't go into acting in high school. Cause I was like, Oh no, I don't want to be, you know, in the theater group or whatever. I was like trying to be too cool. And then <laughs> that didn't work out very well. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. I think it was just being immersed in, in classes and, and, uh, you know, being around everybody that, um, you know, we were just being in that environment. I was like, all right, great. I I felt, I felt like I was, I was allowed to take those risks with no repercussions, um, at least in, in that environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I forget now, do the MFAs start doing, because you have a shorter time, do you start doing plays right away? Or do you have to wait until your second year? We did an intro, um, I think at the end of the first year and um, you know, it's just 
it was really uh like low key um and then yeah i think my first my first play full play or or workshop um was the the first quarter of the second year if that mm-hmm. makes sense so what was it my, what was it it was uh i love this it was raised in captivity by nikki <gasps> oh, nikki silver you were, you were in it we i i love that play i love that play so much i love that play and i'll always love it it was it was that was the first full play because the intro we kind of did like i don't know we did like uh one act and then we switched roles and we did the second act so the intro wasn't like a full play um but i did raising a captivity and i i'll never forget it um uh, sean gunn uh was in it with me i was in it with him um and uh, he was he was so good in that play so i'll never good. forget and yeah. he's such a great yeah. actor and such a cool guy um but i have a a scene where i i play a gay prostitute and i'm making out with Sean Gunn um oh, like rolling right. around on the floor and um but like one of the i think it was probably you know one of the first shows where we had audience i had my college buddies and an ex-girlfriend sitting in the first row you know first wow. row sitting in the you know in the classroom yeah. in the room yeah. there and they had no idea what to expect i didn't tell them anything <laughs> I, I mean they they'd never seen me act they you know they're a couple of the guys were like you know ex jocks or whatever and they're just like what what was that <laughs> they're like kitley what what was that um okay you know they didn't know what to say after the show putting this into perspective that it was essentially the first real play you ever did mm-hmm. not counting the workshop and you're playing this complete this character completely outside of your own experience did you take to it immediately did you have any of those feelings that your friends were echoing back to you like what the fuck yeah i i did i was i was so scared and nervous oh yeah um i didn't know how i was going to do it um you know not only not only like kissing another guy i'm heterosexual and that was kind of odd to me but just acting I was like, wait, people are going to come in and watch this thing, you know? Um, I remember uh, Shauna Flanagan, I believe, was the director, and she she was fantastic. Um, and I felt so taken care of, you know? Um, but, yeah, it was <laughs> – looking back, I'm like, why? Like, I don't know. Um, I love the experience, but I do remember how – how scared and nervous I was almost every show, you know? Um, wow. What else did you do? What were some of your other shows? Um, I did. One of my favorites was uh, One Flea Spare. <gasps> oh, that's um, right. With Kristen with, and Erica and Dave Desmalshin. Yep. And Matt Carter and Barry Brunetti um, directed it. And, I remember being so excited um, because we did that show uh, off campus at the old Victory Garden space. Yep. Um, the upstairs small small space with the pole, pole in the middle. Right of, in the middle. There's a pole in the middle of the stage, um, and that was uh, oh god, that was such a great experience. Um, Why did you love it so much? Why was it so great? Um, it, I loved the play. Uh, and uh, the cast was so much fun. Um, and I loved working in that space and Barry, Barry's like 
I learned so much from Barry, um, just being around him, uh, you know, in class for three years, but also as, as a director, he taught me a lot. Um, I worked with him on, on another show as well. Um, but I, I loved working in that space that it was, it's like a 50 seat black box. Um, and, and everybody, you know, it's just like people were right there. It was so, um, I don't know, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it was so like alive, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was, I remember, uh, some of the, some of the blocking, um, uh, like I remember Dave kind of walking through the audience a little bit and I was like, Oh, this is so cool. You know, it's not like here's the stage and here's the audience and we're going to put on a play. It was like the whole theater was, um, was involved. It, it was, it was really cool. Um, and it was a lot of work that, it was like we had dialects and I that, remember that dialect was oh. crazy too. It was, yeah. it was not a regular standard British situation. I think no. it was like some uh, kind of weird Cockney. Um, I had to learn how to tie all these weird knots and stuff. Um, and I remember Barry, uh, Barry saying to me at one point we were hanging out, you know, in the lobby of the theater school just chowing down on something. And he's just like, Hey, Kitley, you know, you're playing a, a, you know, sailor that's been out at sea with no food for, uh, for, for a couple months. So I'm like, uh, uh-huh. he's like, you might want to try to lose a little weight. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, he was totally kidding, but I, I was, you know, cause we're, we're good friends, but it was, um, it was really, and then I was like, Oh yeah. It's like, I'm like, like that method stuff, right, Barry, you know? And, um but yeah that was that was a fun that was a fun show to work on yeah yeah what, what was your experience of jim jimmo um complete fear at the beginning and and after a while i was like i i i loved i loved learning from him um i i he was really tough he was really tough on us um and i'm glad that he was uh he there was no no bullshit. You know, he would call us out. I didn't, I don't believe that. That's not true. Mm-hmm. You're faking it. Right. Um, but, uh, it was, it was a great experience. He, you know, I had had meetings with him in his, in his office and talk about the, the, you know, doing reviews of whatever play or show I did or whatever. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed working with him. You know, I was thinking about, it's not typical of a response about Jim and also, but looking back, we had mm-hmm. one class with him and, and at the time I didn't know who this person was and he went around and told us who we were like, this is so crazy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a weird thing to do. And he said to me, you are Lenny Bruce. And I thought mm-hmm. to myself, oh, dude, mm-hmm. fuck you. I don't want to mm-hmm. be. And I didn't know who Lenny Bruce was. Mm-hmm. Years later, like maybe, I don't know, only Huge about compliment. five that is years a compliment. ago. Five years ago, I thought he was insulting me. I thought he was insulting <laughs> me and calling me. So, and I didn't even bother to look up who Lenny Bruce was. And I thought, this guy is so full of shit. And then five years ago, I was like, wait a minute. This was this was actually, and I actually, Lenny Bruce is someone I really, really connect with on a lot of levels. Yeah. So anyway, I think it's just interesting how things come back, you know. Yeah. yeah. he he's it, it, Jen did a lot of this uh 
truth telling that I think was hard for many, if not all of us. And I also had a moment like that with him. He told me something. I completely disagreed with it. And many years later, I understood it was exactly right. He told me he was just talking about how uh, about accessing real emotions and acting like a very basic thing. Mm-hmm. And I and I remember pushing back and saying, "But you can't always be accessing your own true emotions." And he was like, "Why not?" And I mm-hmm. said, "Because you'll go crazy." And he's like, "No, you won't." And I I was so rigid and fixed in my idea that 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 you had to act like you weren't. It, I wasn't. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't using. Sure. I had just the completely wrong idea about it. But I think part of why he is let's say controversial is he did a lot of that very direct truth telling. And if you weren't ready to hear it, yeah. you know, you took it as an affront instead of and you know, him telling and the truth. You yeah. guys were old. I mean, MFAs were older a, a little bit, most of you. Mm-hmm. So maybe it like, maybe yeah. he was more, you know, able to, I was just scared and then I was upset. And I think, do, do you keep in touch with him? Do you know what happened to him? Does anyone know what happened to him? I th- I think he's maybe in North Carolina. Um, I don't I, I don't keep in touch with him. Um, yeah, just curious. Yeah, we had three email addresses for him that all bounced. We're trying to get him on the show. So if you're listening, yeah. oh, that would be great. So um, tell us about what life was like for you when you first graduated. You stayed in Chicago. What mm-hmm. was what were the next steps right after graduation? Um. Well, I, I remember thinking, all I need to do is book a national commercial, and I'll be able to pay for most of my um, financial aid. That didn't happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> that did not happen. Uh, I I got an agent um, from the showcase. Um, I was with uh, Linda Jack Talent. I think now it's uh, it was Grossman Jack. Um, but yeah, with um, uh, Mickey Grossman at Linda Jack Talent. And he was great. Um, sent me out on, you know, I auditioned as much as I could for anything I could. But yeah, I mean, just, you know, pounding the pavement um, in terms of auditioning for, for a lot of things, getting, <laughs> getting a lot of rejection um, in terms of, you know, auditioning. You're not going to get most of what you audition for. And coming out of the theater school, it's like, that's a tough thing to, cause you're like, Oh, I'm going to do a show every quarter. And yeah, that's right. <laughs> not the reality when you come out of that really awesome, safe bubble. Um, so, you know, it was a lot of hustling. Like I, I bartended, I was teaching, um, you know, I was teaching up at Piven. Um, <laughs> I was teaching SAT classes, uh, oh my SAT gosh. prep classes at one point, um, just doing everything I could to kind of keep um keep money coming in um taking it back a little bit did you guys have warnings just like we had warnings did you get all that stuff like obviously Mm -hmm. there was a cut system because your class went from yeah went down to half did you get warned or were you a golden child how did that work out for you um i i did not get warned golden child um, yes, I, uh, come on. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. They were like, I was like, like, I felt like they wanted all the teachers were like, all right, we can use him as kind of a mold, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. 
I don't, I don't know. Um, but no, I didn't, I didn't get a warning. I remember a couple of, you know, guys in my group, um, in our section getting warnings. Uh, it was really stressful. Um, some people just quit. Some people left after the first year. When we talked to Jeff Brown and actually other people have said this too, Jeff, but Jeff was telling us, you know, he feels like theater school did so much for him. He learned so much, but that he really didn't learn about the business of acting and, and like how to audition until he was yeah. in the workforce. Did you, did you have the same experience? Uh, yeah. Looking back, I think, I think um, we all, at least I'll just speak for myself. I could have gained a lot, a lot from learning more about the business, learning more about how to navigate, um, you know, your business. Cause we're all our own, you know, companies, so to speak. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't have that. I was like, Oh, I'm an actor, you know, I'm an artist. And, and then it's like, no, you gotta, you gotta bring the business into it. Um, and over the years, I think I've gotten better, but I wish I started. Um, I wish I attacked the business part of it much sooner, if not in school. I mean, we, you know, we had, um, Jane Alderman's class, which was fantastic. And, um, learned a lot about auditioning for, you know, for TV and film. And we talked about agencies and, you know, casting and stuff like that, but we didn't go too far into, okay, how do you, how do you run your business? How do you market mm -hmm. yourself? Um, how do you, how do you make money? And what do you do when you get that money? Like, I remember booking a couple things, like I booked some, some commercial by the grace of God. It was like this, it was my one, one of my few national commercials and that money just, I don't know where it went. Yeah. I mean, and it was like a year or two out of school and I was like, Oh, I got all this money. It was, I, I mm. mean, I'm like, really? I spent all that money. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you have a showcase experience that is worth, do you want to tell us about? Cause I'm so curious. I'm so curious about the showcase since I live in LA yeah. and everything. Yeah. Tell me what your showcase was. What did you do? How did you feel? Did you get a million interviews? Tell me. All um, I remember, uh, stressing out about I of course I'm like oh I have to find the perfect monologue you know because we were we were doing monologue at that time we were doing yeah. monologues and I I think that was it um so I for like weeks I tried to find a monologue and I sat down with Jane Alderman and I was like you got to help me and she's like let's write one I was like uh, okay so she and I wrote this monologue um and <laughs> I don't remember Chicago showcase, but I'll just talk about LA because this is kind of funny. Um, so we do the, we do the showcase um, and, you know, everybody's in the audience or a bunch of, uh, um, you know, other DePaul grads in the, in the audience, of course. And after the show, um, Sean Gunn comes up to me and he's like, he's like, uh, dude, great showcase. You guys looked awesome up there. Congrats and all that stuff. And he's like, your your performance was good but your monologue was so bad dude where'd you get that <laughs> he's like who picked that material for you i'm like oh jane and i wrote it <laughs> what, what was it about yeah i don't i don't remember it was i i don't it was, it was a piece of garbage it was a piece of garbage 
It was like, yeah, I, I don't know what it was about. Um, I was going to say, you know, one of my memories of you is in the is sitting down in the pit or whatever that place was in the whatever in the in the theater school. Love and, that. And yeah. um, I said. I, I think this was you and I think you were, you were, this is when I learned and it says on your website that you're sort of a, a leading man with a really dark comedic streak. And this is what you said to me. I said, I think this was you. I said, good morning, Ryan. And you said, let's not jump to conclusions, Bosworth. And I thought, <laughs> what is that? but it's the funniest thing that I've ever heard. And I was like, Oh, oh, okay. And so when I think when I think about you, I think about this sort of leading man type, but that has this dark sort of Glengarry Glen Ross underpinning of like <laughs> snark snarkicisms. And um it's interesting. And and I wanted to ask you about, you know, what Gina had brought up post graduation and starting out as an actor. How did you we talk a lot with my students about like you know, personal pitch and branding and stuff. How did you develop that? How do you do other people define you as an actor? Do you define yourself? I just, you know, I just have a mm -hmm. question about that. Like the leading man with the, how do, how do you even figure that out that you're a leading man with a darker sort of comedic undertone? How does that happen? I think that's what I want to be. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you know, um, Oh yeah. Like I love, I, I, love playing the leads and I love, um, I love dark comedy. Um, but I don't think casting sees me as that. Uh, I mean, how do they see you? Do you think? Well, as far as like TV and film, um, I think about the amount of times that I've worn, uh, you know, a, a suit and tie to an audition because that was the role that I was playing. You know, and maybe it's just the market that we're in, uh, you know, the Chicago PD and med and fire, um, where I, 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 a lot of times will play a lawyer or a politician or a doctor. Um, and I'm uh, like inside, I'm like, no, I want to play the, you know, I want to play the messed up, like serial like, killer, ex, ex drug addict or whatever, who's kind of funny, you know? Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I think, and I think I mentioned this in our, in our class, Jen, that um, I feel like the industry kind of, you know, determines your type based on, based on the roles that you're getting called in for. Um, and then at some point, hopefully you have enough clout or enough, you know, um, credits or whatever you want to call it that you can say, oh no, I'm going to turn down this lawyer role audition, whatever, because I want to focus on something else. But you know, you got to take the jobs that are <laughs> coming your way. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. That whole typecasting thing, it's, it's still yeah. interesting to me. I mean, a person who comes to mind is Dave Desmalshin, who's constantly cast, you know, in these villainous mm -hmm. fucked up roles. And he will tell you that like, he can relate to that in some ways, but he's so positive yeah. and happy and fun that uh, and then I have a child who is an actor and he's a big kid and he oh uh -huh. only exclusively exclusively I can't think of a single time he didn't get called in for the role of a bully uh -huh. and he is the sweetest most kind-hearted and he's always like mom I don't know how to be a bully oh. <laughs> and you know so uh but 
but this tends to be a very important part of being an actor is figure establishing what your essence is, mm-hmm. which is often just reflected back to you by the roles that you yeah. get called in for and then embracing it and just saying like, ah. okay, this is, I don't relate to this, but like, this is how they see me. So I'm going to, yeah. you know, make it work for me, which I, I wish is another thing. I wish we had kind of learned a little bit more about in the theater school, yeah. how you see yourself yes. almost, almost never matches up with how yeah. casting sees you and, I and think, make, make the leap there. Yes. And, and I think you, you said it right. It, uh, I really relate to what you said about like that. It's, it's, it's embracing it and, and see saying, okay, if I'm going to be in this profession and mm-hmm. these are the people that are casting me instead of fighting against it, because yeah. I think we get into a lot of trouble fight. No, that's not who I am. That's not, well, mm-hmm. I, that's who they see you as. So either, either something's got to shift or you embrace it. And I think embracing it is the only, way to go about it or pick another career because because it is what it is it is how they see you oh it's so interesting i'm like having all these epiphanies now i'm like oh i should just embrace the weird neighbor (laughs) like that is or like whatever it is i think accepting it right and that's where like you know and that's where the business comes in it's like okay you know play all these these roles these typecast roles and make some money from it and then write your own project or you know write your own write your own short film or, or play or whatever and put yourself in it the way you want to, in other words, give yourself the freedom to do that by, yeah. by approaching, you know, all these, all these roles that are going to make you some money and, and embracing it. Like you said, Jen. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's the business part of it that. And by the way, typecasting is not specific to the world of acting. Like mm-hmm. CEOs tend to be tall, point. handsome, <laughs> white guys and you know uh people who are who 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 are going for a profession where they don't necessarily look like the archetype of it struggle yeah. they struggle they but they butt up against it which is not to say that they shouldn't continue that struggle but like t- typecasting is kind of a human nature um yeah flaw I think it's yeah. a, psycho- a psychology thing, right? And, and and what's familiar to us and what makes us comforted and, and what we read in books and see on television. And then it just kind of perpetuates itself. But what I think is interesting as writers that, that one of my goals is to, yeah, is to challenge those typecasts and say, wait a minute, what if the, mm-hmm. the, you know, to pull a Boo Radley kind of situation or to pull, uh, to make the, the, the really, really beautiful woman, um, a, you know, a killer or uh, whatever so it's mm-hmm. it's interesting it's interesting and i i think it to paul it would have behooved us and that's what i'm trying to do it to paul right now is to have this thing that says listen you are you there's no one like you but people mm-hmm. are going to see you a certain way so so can you reconcile that and can you distill it down to a thing and create a sort of um personal pitch that is like hey i'm the body of the the kooky neighbor wrapped up in the you know sophia loren package or whoever whatever you're gonna say but figure it out uh i think it's what i'm saying is take ownership take ownership of what your career is in that way right yeah so Ryan, what do you want to do next? Like, do you have some dreams, uh, you know, about the, where this next phase of your career is going to go? I was actually just talking to a friend of mine about this the other day. A goal of mine is to, um, and this is a big goal for an actor, is to not <laughs> not have to audition 
anymore. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. I'm just going to put it out yeah. there. I want to get to a point where um, I can pick and choose and people are coming to me and saying, Hey, we're considering you this for this. And, you know, um, as opposed to auditioning with hundreds of people for, um, for a small role. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's in a perfect world. Um, but it can happen. Yeah. You can, you, I've seen it where, especially working for PR casting, seeing how some actors make the choice eventually to just be offer only, which means you have to come to me with an offer. And I always think, I know it's risky, but I always think those people are badass that are offer only. Cause I'm like, they just, yeah, they say, I, I was just sitting here thinking mm. like you need a vision board and it needs to say offer only, and you need to hang it in some place that you see every day. Yep. And you used cause that's what it always dude. This is what it always is. Mm-hmm. This is like one of my big learnings in life. I have the majority of my life felt one way about myself and then hoped that everybody else didn't feel that way about me. <laughs> and then been angry when they, I get angry when somebody sees me in the exact way I am presenting myself <laughs> instead of the way that I want to be received. So like, okay, I have to reverse engineer it. I have to just be that thing, embody that thing that I'm hoping to get to, like faking it until mm-hmm. I make it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for faking it until you make it. Where can people find you? Um, my website, Ryan, uh, www.ryankitley.com. Hey guys, it's Gina popping on at the end here to say thank you so much for listening. If you are a listener but not a subscriber, please do subscribe. It really helps with the search engine optimization of it all. There's something like 2 million podcasts out there, so it's pretty hard to make a splash. But people writing reviews, rating, and subscribing, and sharing that information with their friends does really help us. So please do that. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about us, please check out our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on social. Thanks. Thanks.